Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi everyone, welcome back to the TVP pod. We've got another entry into the ESG mini-series for you this week. Juan and Andrew Lydon sat down with Bob Brackett, a managing director and senior research analyst for Alliance Bernstein, based in New York and covering the North American oil and gas sector. He started his career working for ExxonMobil, and before joining Equity Research, he worked for McKinsey. In 2018, he also wrote a short novella of sorts titled How Tech Will End the Oil Age, a tale of whales, wheels, sales, fails, feces, fortunes, madness, crashes, travails, retreats, charge, and charging, a fascinating tale which explores the history and disruption of commodity and extractive industries. Bob, Juan, and Andrew will cover off what has changed since he published his book in 2018, historical analogies between fur trade, tobacco, and the oil and gas industries, the past, current, and future of coal, and lesser-known materials that are key to human survival. Enjoy. Bob Brackett, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I am very well. Thank you so much for having me. Bob, for those that don't know you, can you please provide our listeners with a brief introduction of your background and where have you been all of this time? Okay, well, I'll keep it brief, but uh, I'm currently a sell-side analyst covering uh, oil and gas and global metals and mining here at Bernstein Research. Uh, It's a job I've done longer than any job in my career. It's been 12 years. Prior to that, I was an executive in the oil business, uh, management consultant before that, and then a a technical oil and gas uh, practitioner before that. And I've, I've picked up an MBA along the way and, and picked up a PhD in uh, planetary sciences along the way. So a bit of, bit of geology and a bit, hopefully, of the finance side as well. Before we go on to the topics of this episode on the Value Perspective podcast ESG miniseries, I want to ask you something. Do you have any updates on the OSIRIS-REx journey? <laughs> so, so interesting. That was a, a throwaway comment in, in one of the long notes I've written. Uh, it, we're still waiting, and um, it harkens back. Well, I'll I'll tell a, a bit of a paleontology joke. And so, uh, a kid goes into a museum and sees this big dinosaur there, and he asks the attendant standing next to it, says, "How old's that dinosaur?" And the and the the attendant replies, "Well, that dinosaur is sixty five million and seven years old." The kid's like, "Wow, that's pretty precise. How do you know that?" 
And the attendant says, well, I started working here seven years ago, and I asked how old that dinosaur was, and it was 65 million years at the time. And so that's my only paleontology joke. <laughs> but the idea is, and it, it harkens back to Osiris Rex, you know, we spend a lot of time as investors trying to combine these very long wavelength, long time period ideas, themes, thematic investing. And then we're also forced uh, to sit there and think about the weeks and the quarters uh, and the years. And, and often that's the challenge. And we can fool ourselves by trying to line them up too precisely. But uh, one of the reasons I do finance and where I am now is I do like that short attention span. You can create a hypothesis and you can test it. And then uh, you can go see whether you were right or wrong. And so those feedback loops are very fast. Osiris Rex is a uh, mission um, that is uh, off and has collected a sample from a comet and it's returning to Earth. These orbital distances takes years and years, and you don't know until the thing lands and it's recovered and intact whether whether the experiment worked or not. So it really shows when you're thinking about science and, and when we talk about uh, natural resources, like the time frames are just extremely long compared to our day jobs of uh, refreshing every few minutes on the screen. The reason I had never heard about um, Osiris-Rex before reading the very good piece or the book that you guys published in 2018. So could you please provide us a little bit with the background of that specific book? My understanding is that was the 2018 version that was the second edition. And then what happened after that? Because to my understanding, there has not been a new edition uh, made public. Yeah, so my job description is to get attention so that I can talk to institutional investors and uh, and to do it ethically and reliably. And, uh, but beyond that, there's very few rules. And I can write a quarterly update on the large cap stock. I can write a long-term forecast. But in the oil and gas sector, it was getting more and more difficult to get attention. And so uh, seeking attention, I tried a, a, a half book, effectively a, a, a half-size version of what Bernstein Research is very famous for, their, their classic black book. And uh, what I did was looked at the oil and gas industry, which even back in 16 or in 2018 was seen as going away. And I tried to debate uh, this mythical tech investor, this disruptive investor, uh, and and argue from a bunch of uh, analogies in the natural resource world. Well, wait a minute, you know I'm not dead yet, uh, and maybe these things take longer than the latest version of the smartphone, etc. So that was the genesis of that book. It was really an effort to get attention. It worked to some degree. Uh, a year after that, I ended up picking up metals and mining as a way to get attention because again. Um, the remarkable thing about the oil and gas industry is how important it is and how long I think it's going to be around, uh, but just how little investor interest there has been you know, up until we came out of this pandemic, frankly. I think that's a, a great segue into our first question today, which is, you, you guys published the book in 2018. I have to say, I went through all of this journey examining all of these different materials and trying to find analogies to see whether or not you can disrupt 
extracting materials, actually, in essence. How much have, have things changed over the course of the last five years? I mean, in, in many ways, at very, so, so much has changed and so very little has changed. We're, we are consuming as a planet more oil and gas than we were back then. Um, EVs are being adopted and, and grinding up their S-curves. The technology for EVs has not been displaced, but the number of consumer choices has broadened. And so in many ways, when you're thinking about, you know, why do we even need electric vehicles right, when gasoline vehicles are, are perfectly good for the purpose? And the reason is, is we are trying to undertake an energy transition to reduce CO2 emissions, uh, to ultimately minimize their impact on global climate and that journey has barely budged. In fact, <laughs> we haven't made very much progress on it. So, so the answer is, and, and in between all of that, we had this perfect experiment. We actually had a year in which global emissions fell. And if you if you looked at it that in a vacuum, you'd say, well, that twenty that year twenty twenty, well, that was great. The planet really got together and decided to reduce global emissions. How did they do that? The answer was, well, they had a global pandemic and they stayed home for, for a year. Uh, we're past that, and we're also past that uh, emissions uh, notch, and we're back very much to the trends that have been going on for these last five years. I guess you were telling people how different analysts were reading the Tesla situation. You were saying, well, if you look at the whoever is in charge of the technology side of the research, they are very bullish Tesla. But if you talk to whoever is in charge of oil and gas or materials or any other sector, they're quite bearish Tesla. So I mean, this is a podcast where we cannot really talk about valuation levels or provide signaling to our listeners. So we need to be a little bit careful about that. But how much has the Tesla story changed the landscape over the course of the last six years, when you were writing the piece as to wh where it is now? Because it did pick up quite a lot of momentum. Yeah, I mean, five years. And, and I'll, um, I'll mention a fantastic book. It's called Diffusion of Innovations. It's quite an old book. It's like 60s or 70s, 80s, I forget, by Everett Rogers. And he founded a lot of these ideas we have around early adopters and fast followers, all of those kind of classic uh, tech uh, paradigms and analogies. And he started out by studying um, social adoption. So some of the, the work he did was going to uh, Peru and trying to convince locals, but this is back in the 60s and 70s, you know, stop going down to the river to collect water, instead boil it at home. And the you would think, and, and you could spend all this time explaining the science and you're boiling off parasites, etc., and none of that really worked. And you really needed change agents. You needed people in the community that were respected and thoughtful. Uh, and they were the ones that said, well, look, I boil water, so you should too. And so if you think about where we are in, in the diffusion of innovations for EVs, uh, the, the early adopters have them now. Uh, the fast followers have them. We're selling you know, we've moved from the years of selling 100,000 EVs to north of a million, and we'll hit the 10 million mark uh, in the coming years. And so they're fairly ubiquitous at this point. Um, 
And it, in fact, we, one of the things that there was the early day of the Tesla where you saw one go down the street and you'd look at it, right? We're now in a world where Teslas are are limousines and taxis and whatnot, and they don't attract that attention. So we're we're moving into the middle of that adoption curve. That's really interesting. There is a great passage in your book when you make it when you make the point that and I'm and I open quote, look to rubber, look to hydropower, look to coal and the pace of its death, look to diesel and gasoline competing, look to the whaling industry, look to Wano. Energy and raw materials are extractive industries are different from cameras, smartphones, chip design, and social trends. And the more that investors can accept that, the more willing they might be to consider that, although in the long run, the old sector will be dead. And in the short run, the old sector is hated. It's always the muddy middle where the money is to be made. Can you, and I close quotes, can you please further elaborate on this for the benefit of our listeners and explain why extractive industries should not be compared to tech type disruption? Yeah, so tech type disruption comes, there's two, two problems with the tech type disruption uh, analogy. One is survivorship bias. Uh, and you see this all of the time that somebody will name 12 amazing technologies, they will highlight they are the 13th, and therefore there's this assumption of uh, perfect 100% market share penetration. Uh, you know, probably the metaverse is the classic example of that right now, this idea that we're all going to uh, enter the metaverse. Uh, but then you go back and, and look at technologies and say, well, um, you know, whether it's Xerox or whether it was fax machines or pagers or even sort of higher visibility things like the Segway back in 99 or, or Google Glass 10 years ago, there's all of these technologies that can take extremely high market share move extremely quickly because I can set up manufacturing, I can set up factories and produce these things and, and bring them to market quickly. Uh, and they might, for their brief period of time, hit near perfect adoption, and they get displaced by the next technology that has a half-life of construction to market of, of a couple of years. Uh, I mean, the other one is just digital cameras. Digital cameras destroyed the, um, the analog camera market. We all kind of know that. But then what we don't realize is that smartphones came and destroyed digital cameras. There was a, a period of time where everyone was going to own a digital camera. And suddenly, uh, the iPhone, Google, whoever puts them on their devices. And there, there's a famous quote, the, the best camera is the camera you have in your hands. And everyone uh, left that big bulky DLSR at home and travels with a, a smartphone camera. So that's, that's technology, very rapid, very competitive, driven by consumer preferences and with winners and losers. And on the extractive industry side, it's just a lot of work. It's just a uh, uh, time cycles that are measured in decades of finding the resource and appraising the resource and moving toward a final investment decision and then developing that resource and then producing it out. And again, th those... Those time periods, those return periods are measured in decades, uh, and right, they're less dependent on consumer preferences. Consumers don't even know uh, how they're using most of the elements on the periodic table. It's just woven into their life. Uh, and so it just it, it's a very different pace of industry 
It comes with extremely high capital investment, uh, and it comes with extremely low decline rates. So once it's flowing it'll or, or growing, or once it's being produced, it just kind of stays with us. There is this point in your book that I thought was very interesting, where you make the case that demand for like any material has never declined. It, it always goes up and up. And that's something that you constantly repeat throughout the book. Yeah, so it's 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 dominantly correct. It's uh, it, and I'll I'll say it two ways that and and I've it, right oil. We talk about oil demand, but no one actually demands oil, right? No one looks around and says, "I wish in my backyard I had a barrel." And what people really demand are the things that uh, oil allows. And so we refine a barrel of oil and we get plastics, of course, and we get gasoline and jet fuel and diesel. And so those are the things that either allow me to have my devices, it allows me to move around, uh, so mobility, it gives me the ability to purchase goods from far away. And so the demand for those things never goes away. Population grows every year. Uh, GDP per capita grows every, on average every year, and uh, that economy becomes uh, demands for for the things that natural resources provide. And then on top of that, and, and so unless human behavior changes, the demand for things in the physical world keeps rising. And when we look across, for the, the U.S. Geological Survey has these great data sets that go back a hundred years. It's a, How much, how much uh, peat moss does the world use? How much copper and aluminum and iron ore and steel, etc.? Those things just continue to rise, and it's the exceptions where they fall. and And in those falling are kind of the interesting uh, lessons to be learned. You mentioned the kind of medium term time frame as being the the one that's that's interesting. And so, particularly for for oil and gas, I wondered what your view was. In terms of where that middle, that medium term is, uh, hopefully that, that makes sense. So, if in the if in the long run those those commodities are going to die, then what's your view on in the medium term where demand peaks and then you know the, the time period over which it, it it tails off? Yeah, so we think that oil demand, but today coming out of the pandemic, oil demand is back to about 100 million barrels of oil per day. Uh, we think it rises towards 110 and then plateaus and, and rolls over. Uh, and so there's another 10% growth to come on the demand side. And all of that demand growth is coming from non-OECD countries. So the future of oil demand growth is is the non-OECD. So think China, think India, uh, think uh Uh, Middle East, Africa, et cetera. So you get get the idea. It's basically those countries that have not yet achieved the same lifestyle that ours uh, is, which is again fueled kind of on oil. So that's 10 years, you know, 20. When you look at some of the valuations in our sector, uh, you've got companies, not even valuation, let's just talk about dividend yields. Right? They're dividend yields for um, companies that drill and produce shale oil. That are measured in eight, nine, ten percent dividend yields for companies with places to drill, healthy balance sheets, etc. So that muddy middle for a shale company is basically the market saying, "Better pay me 
10% a year, I'll take a chance on whatever is left in 10 years. Uh, but that's the time frame that's being measured. It ain't 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's not a, a tech stock where I, I go out 40 years of my DCF and discounted back to today. It's it's measured you know, between now and uh, hopefully our retirement dates. In the book, you are always trying to make these analogies, trying to find historical cases where you kind of try to think about how things might play out for the oil and gas industry going forward based on what has happened in the past. And you found this sort of analogy with fur. And so the question is, do you really think today in January 2023 that oil and gas is on borrowed time? It behaves... So fur is interesting because the, the fur industry has a perfect substitute Right. You can go into almost any any shop in the world and find you know synthetic fur that's more colorful than the real thing, that's cuter than the real thing, doesn't have the negative externality, at least from the standpoint of, of the mink. Um, and yet kind of the, the natural fur market continues. It is moved into the non-OECD. Uh, again, it's a kind of a recurring theme. You know, as incomes rise and, and people try to achieve a lifestyle. Uh, that perhaps the West achieved a, a generation ago. So yeah, fur continues. And so, you know, calling the end of the fur industry would be tough. Calling the end of the oil industry, yeah, we'll see. But to, yeah, if, you know, the, the view is if you can build a model that's uh, quantitative, that can get you to 2030, that can justify valuations, then you can kind of look beyond and say, well, I've I've been paid for taking that risk in a mature industry and I'll just continue to keep taking it. So it's still risk reward for mature industries, you know, has to benefit the person taking that risk. Just to come back to that middle ground in terms of timing again, the one I didn't ask you about previously, I guess, was coal, which has been one that, you know, people have been has been used for an incredibly long time. Um, and has refused to go away, even though lots of people would, would like it to go away. And so your thoughts on it, because it's become particularly controversial, thermal coal in particular, on how long that's going to be, I guess, in the view of some people, a, a necessary evil for the world. Yeah. So if you think about the the target of net zero for thermal coal is about 2040. So in 20 years, we've got to get from yeah, today, the the planet uh, consumes about 7 billion tons of thermal coal a year. So each of us, uh, about a ton. Uh, and so we've got to get from where we are now to zero in 20 years. That requires double-digit decline rates, 10 15% to, to be meaningful. The typical coal mine is a 30 to 40-year asset. So one divided by 30 years is about 3% a year. And so if you're a coal miner, you look and say, there is this threat that demand is going to fall much faster than uh, my base asset declines. And so certainly, if the market's screaming today for me to add capacity, I've just got to say, well, that doesn't make any sense, kind of do, do the DCF. And so what will you do? You'll, you'll manage your thermal coal asset. Um, into any demand environment, 
And as demand falls, if it falls, you'll you'll shut in the highest cost mines and the price setting mechanism will move to lower and lower and lower cost mines until we're done. So so that would be uh, the default assumption that net zero wins in a time period of 20 years and thermal coal is stranded. Uh, but the, the reality is it's been basically flat for several years in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, you've seen Europe pull every cargo of LNG it can to feed its natural gas demand. That LNG uh, came out of, uh, competed away from Asia. Asia then looked and said, I need electricity. What do I do? I, I burn thermal coal for electricity. And so the volatility in the short run, because we've underinvested in thermal coal and because we've written it off, will create these periods of over-earning on the back of uh, of its citizens. And and you mentioned those non-OECD countries before, and I guess coal yeah. use of thermal coal um, is a p- particularly acute issue there, you know, with countries like China, South Africa, Indonesia, you know, highly dependent on it. Is there a way that they can wean themselves off that in a time frame that's useful? Or again, is that just something that, that's only going to go one way and that in terms of the, the climate challenge, the West has to attempt to offset that? Yeah. And again, it's kind of it's that uh, emerging theme. Most of the planet is not a um, you know middle class or better um, wealthy Westerner that has had the benefit of a generation's of over-consuming versus the average. And so, yeah, this theme of the, the emerging markets, the non-OECD, you know, coming into wealth uh, and wanting all of the things that that requires, which is energy. Now, again, it kind of comes back to this idea that no one wants, no one, there's no demand for thermal coal, right? Uh, there's only demand for electricity. And the answer is under scenarios where you're spending or the, the price tag to do this in 20 years is is written in the hundreds of billions a year to trillions a year to get there. Uh, so there is a price tag. The technology exists. Uh, the capital might exist. The will might exist. So uh, it's solvable, but it's not linear and it's just not down to the right. It's it's volatile. One of my favorite passages of the book, and this is something that I've heard you discussing on our podcast, is the fact that in here in England, there was a king many centuries ago that actually tried to ban coal because he didn't like the pollution aspect of it. And, and not even that attempt was able to stop people from consuming coal. Yeah. And so, I mean, the reality, coal has always has had negative externalities and back then it was the soot and even you know a decade or two ago i I used to work in china and and in the western part of china right the the key challenge to coal consumption wasn't co2 emissions that was much too abstract for where they were in their development it was just uh, two aspects one is the use of uh, home cooking with coal and and all of those the local soot and then just the the lack of uh, first, you know, best generation technology for scrubbing. So you constantly had you know soot in the atmosphere and, and falling out, uh, almost like 
pollen uh, if you live in the south uh, during during tree season. So so the answer is coal's always had this negative externality, but any time that the utility exceeds that uh, negative externality and there's there's no adult in the room, you end up in in the situation. So coal coal has outlasted uh, everyone so far that has tried to ban it. Because one of the points that also come across in the book quite often is the fact that many of the the reason why people have stopped using many of these materials is not because the supply was not there. It's just because societies decided that the cost benefit had changed and then regulation was imposed to remove that specific material. So I think that like fur was one of the analogies that you were trying to explain in the book, but also whaling. I mean, it's not that it's not that whales died and then people move away from whales. It's just that people decided that it was not good to keep killing the whales. Yeah, uh, and and it's it, there was the two people have been given credit for saving the whales, and and one is incorrect and the other's correct, and so. Uh, you know, John D. Rockefeller, the, the, the meme that runs around the oil industry is that Rockefeller saved the whales because kerosene came into the market. So the first use for, for oil drilling up in Pennsylvania uh, wasn't for transport. It was for illumination. And so at the time, uh, candles were extremely expensive and whaling, especially for the sperm whales, was all about collecting this high quality source of light. And uh, kerosene comes in, the kerosene lamp comes in, suddenly that destroys the demand for sperm whales, and then suddenly uh, the sperm whale industry ends. And, and that's somewhat correct. It's a little more complicated than that. But the whaling industry did not end. And in fact, the whaling industry peaked in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, whaling was an important source of calories uh, for World War II Europe. Whaling was an important source of calories for post-World War II Japan. And so ultimately, the person that saved the whales was uh, Richard Nixon, not generally perceived as either an environmentalist or uh, as much of a nice guy, <laughs> but he was responsible for the Marine Mammal Protection Act. He was responsible for the Clean Air Act, and he was responsible for the Endangered Species Act. So a remarkable set of uh, policies under his presidency. But what ultimately happened was that People looked at the the cost of whaling, and they worried about the health of the oceans, and they worried about this term called a charismatic megafauna. And so the idea was that that for most of history, whales were regarded as monsters, the same as squids or or the uh, the sea devils, sea dragons. And what the seventies did was they they humanized whales, and they made humans love whales. And suddenly the utility of whaling, we didn't really need those calories, against the the benefit uh, uh, tilted and saved the whales. And so it has and it, it worked to save um, the fur in the West. Again, it's kind of that trade-off. How how do you attach um, sort of a social love? Uh, and let that drive that uh, that regulation. And we've the, the industry, the, the world has tried it. For example, with polar bears and climate change, hasn't quite stuck. But very deliberate. How can I put a charismatic face against a crisis 
and therefore use that as the lever with which to push society to change. I just come back to some of the the oil majors that, that you talked about earlier. They're obviously trying to do lots of different things at the moment and putting their capital in lots of different directions, whether it be shareholder returns, um, sustaining current hydrocarbon supply, but also you know, with an, an eye on the future and those concerns that investors have about their long-term future. What, if, what if any of the things that oil companies are investing in today do you think they have a chance of succeeding at? So whether it's wind farms or hydrogen or, or any of those activities, are there any you think that they're historic skill set gives them a chance of succeeding at or are they just kind of throwing good money after bad in, and looking for a, an answer to the future? Yeah, I'll, I'll divide that almost into two questions. You know, should they reallocate their cash flows into these things? And then the second is, you know, will they succeed? On the should they, the analogies, if we go back to history, if, if I'm a, a whaling fleet, and I change my business model and say, I'm going to slowly do less whaling and some of my fleet, I'm going to do cruises for whale watching. Right? I, I don't think that would resonate. If tobacco companies invested in healthcare, right? people would look and say, well, that, that's a little odd. So there's something around that messaging. And so when oil and gas companies um, then invest in, say, renewables, it, it the question is, will they ever get fair credit for it? And even if internally they believe it's the right thing to do and it's part of a portfolio, you know, how will the valuation work? And we've seen a, a bit of a schism between how the European integrated energy companies think about it and, and how maybe the, the U.S. listed ones. And in the U.S., the business model is, okay, here's the cash flow to the investor now you, as the investor, reallocate it into the sectors that need it. Go fund a, a renewable startup. Go fund a, a wind startup, et cetera. Uh, and then in Europe, it's a, it's a bit of a, a mix, right? generating these cash flows and reinvesting within renewables in the portfolio. And certainly within Bernstein, we've had this debate uh, between how successful can oil and gas companies be. On the one side, oil and gas companies um, are some of the largest allocators of capital in the world. So if you look at the mega projects that oil and gas companies do, they're the most expensive things that uh, we as a society undertake. Uh, other than something, I think the Three Gorges Dam is one of the largest capital projects undertaken. But behind that comes projects like Kashagan the giant oil fields uh, in Kazakhstan, uh, or behind that comes Gorgon, the giant LNG projects in Western Australia. So the oil industry can deploy massive amounts, billions, tens of billions, up to hundreds of billions of capital into projects across the planet. They've got supply chains and the capability to build anything almost anywhere. Uh, and they've got the project management capabilities to do that. They are uh, full of smart scientists and engineers. And so from, from that perspective, you look and say, right, those, those capabilities are there. Uh, the difference is once you start investing into renewables, they're more regulated markets. Um, right? If you think about utilities and electricity, they tend to be lower return because they're regulated. Um, 
and they tend to have a different mindset. So the oil and gas companies in the past have branched out in periods of high cash flow. So uh, Exxon, for example, used to own copper mines and coal mines and uranium uh, and uh, typewriters and mobile in the old days used to own Montgomery Wards, a giant retail. So they've tried to diversify in the past, never been hugely successful, perhaps for cultural reasons. They're trying again. And uh, I think the jury is out. But clearly, if your goal is getting to net zero, if your goal is uh, abating some of these negative impacts, you, you, you want as much capital flowing into the sector as possible. Right? As an investor, you might not want that. But as a policymaker, yeah, let everybody throw their cash into the pile. The, the more we spend, the faster we get smart. You just mentioned tobacco or made that reference to tobacco before. And I just want to go back to another passage of the book, uh, which I found really interesting. So I open quotes. You mentioned, if an investor tells me my sector is going the way the, the way of Internet stocks, I'll be ecstatic if confused. If an investor tells me my sector is going the way of one or coal, I would be worried. But if, an, but if an investor tells me that my sector is going the way of tobacco, I will take it. A harmful yet sticky, addictive and inelastic are almost synonymous after all. Product with a long history, slowly being driven out of favor, favor by the legal system and society, but seeing emerging hopes. Well, that is at the very least an interesting and potentially investable sector. Can you explain, please, why the analogy of the, to the tobacco industry could be potentially the most powerful one and why gasoline is addictive, at least for the time being? Yes. Uh, so, so gasoline in all parts of the barrel are addictive. Um, and the, the perfect test was COVID, right? During COVID, demand for oil fell about 10%. We, we shut in the global economy. Uh, and despite that, uh, 90% of the end uses of, of uh, oil continued. And so that gives you a sense of just how woven it is into the global economy. Now, when I wrote that note uh, in 2018, you could have pulled up on Bloomberg uh, the top dividend-paying stocks in the S&P 500, and at the top of that list would have been tobacco stocks. In 2018, uh, the companies I covered in oil and gas paid trivial dividends uh, if they hadn't cut them in 16 and if they weren't getting ready to cut them again in 2020. So call it, you know, one, two, three percent. You know, fast forward to uh, last year, and you could have pulled up the top paying dividend stocks in the S&P 500, and then they were oil and gas companies. Now, arguably, there's a cyclicality to that versus the structural nature of, of tobacco dividends. But effectively, the oil and gas sector said, OK, let's go be like tobacco. And by that, you have an industry that's in secular decline, although not yet for oil and gas. And you have an industry that's heavily taxed, but nonetheless has this extremely uh, inelastic demand. So I think in the U.S., when they tested taxes on cigarettes, they found that by increasing the price 350%, they reduced demand by 33%. Right? That's just a, a massive level of inelasticity. And so the tobacco analogy is that uh, it's regulated, it's got a negative externality, it's a great source of taxes, 
So uh, $300 billion a year are raised in various tobacco taxes globally. Uh, so it's a meaningful amount of the tax base. Therefore, policymakers don't want to zero it out tomorrow because they'll have to replace that stream. Uh, but they want to zero it out slowly. Uh, and in the meantime, the tobacco industry is very well structured. They behave well and uh, they return cash to shareholders. And so so it's a, a fairly uh, accurate analogy that that's coming true as we speak. And that's even before we've seen the peak in oil demand. And if we just talk a little bit about um, electric vehicles, uh, one point that also come across in the book is the fact that, I mean, you, you say, well, there needs to be a very meaningful technological advantage between the electric vehicle and the combustion engine version for the latter to be replaced by the former. And so I guess the question is, five years after the half book, do you think that EVs have actually closed that gap? Yeah, and so the the idea was, if you've got two goods that are sort of substitutable, you know, what drives the, the purchase decision? And so in the case of uh, analog cameras versus digital cameras, uh, clearly the digital camera was a vastly superior product for 99% of the people other than these hobbyists that are very much into developing their own film or whatnot. And certainly smartphones versus dumb phones and flat screen TVs versus CRTs. So in each of those cases, the new product had significantly more utility than the old product. And the price points were comparable and the price outlay was small right, for a consumer. I'll, I'll spend a hundred bucks and try this digital camera. And then you come to electric vehicles and uh, vehicles in general. And generally speaking, the purchase of a vehicle is the second biggest purchase a household makes apart from their house. And so it's a very large ticket item. Uh, and the question was, what's the relative utility? And does that drive that adoption? And so, and then you can start to segment it by early adopters and in the middle. So it, at the time, and, and frankly still today, the earliest adopters of EVs typically owned at least two or three vehicles. The EV was one of the two or three vehicles, and, and generally a, an internal combustion engine was the second or third. And so even amongst early adopters, you were not hitting 100% penetration, and therefore you could look and say, well, how are we ever going to get to full penetration? Now, fast forward five years, and the the ultimate sticking points uh, for EVs are, are still around what they always were, which is kind of range anxiety and charging times. And those are both being addressed uh, and so over time, um, the typical EV uh, has, you know, modestly greater utility uh, and comparable price point. Although this year, um, certainly as metal prices rise, we're, we're seeing that diverge a bit. And so, yeah, we're we don't have the killer app. The dream would be uh, what what the the EV bulls would say is around uh, sort of full self driving. Right. That is a massive step up uh, in utility, although, again, that's not unique 
to electric vehicles unless an electric vehicle manufacturer dominates that technology and, and has an economic moat. So it's proceeding. There is a relative utility benefit for EVs, and we're kind of slowly climbing that S-curve, but uh, it certainly hasn't drastically changed. I'm just wondering, do you think it, it will, because there's obviously a much larger carbon footprint to an electronic vehicle than consumers perhaps realize when they drive it, in, in that that carbon footprint is one step removed from the actual driving of the vehicle and in the, in the supply chain, the extraction of metals and so on. Do you think that ever starts to get factored into people's views on which cars or other products they buy? Or is that, again, just one of those inconvenient things that's, that's going to remain sat in the background that, that stops things changing but, but make, makes people feel better about the way they're living? Yeah, um, it, it's interesting because if you do sort of um, the entire footprint of an EV versus an internal combustion engine, and you burden that EV with the carbon footprint around extracting the metals that, that go into it, uh, and, and there's a huge range of views on this, but the, this seven years might be, if I can drive that EV for seven plus years, then uh, I've got a, a beneficial carbon footprint. It sort of means that if I buy an EV and I wreck it in year five, I actually haven't benefited the economy. And it's certainly uh, over time as we get better at recycling battery metals, that calculus will shift. And if we ever become circular, it gets even better. So I think in the short run, the answer is uh, those those climate benefits of EVs are overstated in that consumer's mind. In the long run, it's required to get to a circular economy that would be beneficial. And so um, I think most adopters of EVs that do it, along with other lifestyle changes, I mean, they're doing it uh, with a, a longer and perhaps more optimistic horizon. Okay. And on the a previous guest on the podcast has made the point that rather than throwing all the, the tax subsidies and, and, and so on at, um, at EVs, the strategy should be to encourage more people to adopt hybrids and that the, the kind of cost-benefit ratio in terms of reducing emissions would be, would be more would be more favorable doing things that way do you have any thoughts on that yeah um i mean golf carts have have been around forever uh and would solve almost all of our issues if you just could convince people to or or frankly public transportation so the we have technologically solved the various problems we have around how much CO2 we put into the atmosphere, we just haven't socially solved them. We haven't convinced people uh, to give up their lifestyles uh, for the greater good. Uh, the pandemic, you know, kind of coming back to that was a period of time where uh, everyone had an opportunity to soul search because uh, there's bloody, bloody less, much else to do. Uh, so you're sitting at home, you could do whatever you want, you could contemplate, well, let me be a better person. And, uh, you know, by and large, uh, we did not become necessarily better people after the pandemic. And so the, the social challenges uh, are much more difficult than the technological challenges. But yeah, uh, and certainly a Toyota, for example, is a big believer in hybrids as solving the problem. There are solutions. It's just 
how do you solve the social aspect? One material that seems to be missing from your research, at least in the 2018 version, was uranium. And I wonder if you could provide us with a few thoughts about the nuclear aspect going forward or nuclear as an energy or a solution uh, going forward and what role it will play in the future. Yeah, so I'll, I'll split that into fission and fusion. And on the, the fission side, one of my favorite laws is, is Wright's law, uh, which Moore's law is a more specific version. So Moore's law we're, con we're familiar with in semiconductors. Uh, but Wright's law was just this uh, concept that uh, we learn by doing that every doubling of, of units produced reduces cost by a fixed percentage. And so the idea is if you're going to tackle a technology, pick one that you can do lots and lots of times because you'll take all the cost out of it. And certainly in, in my career, uh, shale gas and then shale oil was that technology. We did lots of little units of capital and we learned the whole time and we utterly deflated the cost curve. And so on fish on the nuclear side, that that's the answer. Just go to a um, default uh, setup, build the same reactors over and over again, take out the cost and and you've solved for that problem once you've overcome the social aspects uh, again. On fusion, that's a classic, It's just around the corner, it's 10 years or 20 years into the future, and it has been and always will be uh, because of the capital involved. Just massive amounts of capital, uncertainties. Uh, it's much more like a moonshot project, uh, whereas on the fission side, you can have a Liberty Ships type project, which is let's build lots of them and, and get smart about it. So uh, uranium's interesting. It's going to be with us in theory longer than uh, oil and gas will. It suffers from those same social aspects, but yeah, you're right. I haven't haven't tackled it uh, quite yet. Definitely something new for the third edition of the book. Yeah, yes. Just if there are any materials, technologies, or anything really that people, there's obviously a lot of debate about all this stuff going on, but that are frequently overlooked by people, or people don't realize they're their significance to, to the way they want things to develop um, that, in your view, get overlooked? Yeah, I'll, I'll throw out one example that's out of the scope of things I, I focus on and then one that's in. Um, I mean, the one that's just remarkable in terms of how important it is to humanity and, and how little anyone thinks about it is just the Haber-Bosch process for making ammonia. And so the idea is you can take uh, natural gas and you get to take cheap electricity and nitrogen from the atmosphere. And that's where the vast majority of the Earth's ammonia comes from. It's one of the three critical fertilizers along with you know, potash and phosphorus. And uh, without the Haber-Bosch process, the planet could support probably half the people it has. So instead of the eight billion of us running around, we'd be back to to the 1970s level of population at 4 billion. And so each of us use about 15 kilograms a year uh, of ammonia. We never see it. We never smell it. Uh, and yet it's the, the reason that uh, half of us are, are well-fed and moving around. And 
There's a whole industry around it, a whole system that moves it around the planet. Uh, it's a dominant form of natural gas demand, uh, yet um, no one ever pauses and celebrates you know, World uh, Haber-Bosch Process Day or World Ammonia Day. Uh, the other one that's nearer and dearer to my heart is just copper. The there, It's very hard to pick winning technologies. Uh, and so as the energy transition plays out, we don't know, you know how the hydrogen economy will evolve and how much platinum that will consume or how solar panels will evolve and how much silver those consume. Or even on electric vehicles, how they'll evolve and how much cobalt they'll consume. But behind all of that, uh, is the fact that when you go to the periodic table of the elements, you know, copper sits there as the natural connector of moving electricity around the planet from sources to uses. And, you know, generally speaking, the average person consumes about three kilograms of copper a year. That's like 30 bucks. Uh, and it's literally the backbone of the future uh, of electricity. And so uh, there's no you know, national holiday for copper that I'm aware of, although Chile should probably have one. Probably, I can't remember what uh, wedding anniversary copper is, but I don't think it's a particularly um, illustrious one, is it? Um, exactly. That's interesting because one f uh, question I always had to ask you was, in the same way that some of the, the oil majors and other oil-related companies, companies have tried to position themselves you know, as being more progressive in terms of the energy transition, we'd see a number of mining companies as well now start to talk about how their portfolios are, are positioned to su supply and support the energy transition. So are there any, firstly, do, do you think that's actually a theme or is that just um, mining companies branding things for their own benefit? Um, and you, you may have answered this already, but but if so, what would be the metals or other materials that you'd want to have in your portfolio of mining assets if you were running a mining company yeah and i'll contrast the miners with the oil companies the, the oil companies you have to feel a little sad for them because they've got a industry where their customer has to stand out in the cold and hold a, 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 the the gasoline pump down and they can see exactly how much they're spending as they pump and it's something measured in the 10s or 20s or 50s or 100 pounds. Uh, and they can just see that leaving their wallet as they stand there uh, by the side of their car. Like no, no other product that consumers purchase uh, operates that way. Uh, you, when you go to the grocery store to buy milk, they don't make you pump it into your own jar or container while you see the price or, or beer or, or wine or whatnot. No other product sits at the four corners every time you drive by and tells you the price of it. So in, in many ways, um, the oil industry and, and the consumer interact in this very negative way. So nobody really loves an oil company. On the mining company side, uh, no one ever thinks about you know which mine their copper came from or what company produced it. So they're very much less visible to the public eye uh, until something goes terribly wrong. Uh, and Therefore, they, they sort of behave in a world where they don't have to worry about that day-to-day -day consumer. Uh, it gives them a bit of a freedom to, to do what they think is right, I suppose. The challenge they have isn't facing the consumer. They, they never do. Their challenge is facing the local community. 
And so I think if you're a, a large global diversified miner, you look and say, hey, um, I can help in the energy transition. I can mine copper and certainly nickel and cobalt uh, and all of, uh, lithium. And you go down the list. The challenge is that mining uh, interacts with that local environment. And yeah, the typical grade of iron ore today is half a percent. So that means I've got to move 100 tons of rock, blast it out of the ground, open pit, let's say, reduce it to the size of flour, uh, which takes energy, extract that uh, half a percent, and then I'm left with 99.5% of my 100 tons that I have to dispose of in a, a way that's safe for the environment, but clearly takes up large volumes. And so local ESG uh, has become more and more powerful over time. Local communities have a louder voice than they've ever had, and that's that's a force for good. The drawback is it creates this huge tension between global ESG, you know, solving the, the world's energy transition challenges, and that local ESG, where that local community is told, well, I, I really need to develop this uh, large asset in your backyard. It will have impacts, whether it's the trucks coming up and down the streets, whether it's the risks of, uh, of the tailing piles being handled safely, et cetera. And so I think for the, the, the big miners, that is where their thoughts are. How do you balance that local and global ESG? Uh, but uh, and and. Currently, local ESG is is winning, which makes sense because local problems are always more important than global. Near-term problems are always more important than long-term, uh, and, and that's the world we're in, and it's reflected in the, the prices of commodities that we see today on our Bloomberg screens. Bob Brockett, thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective podcast. This was absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. My pleasure, Juan, and thank you, Andrew, as well. Yeah, thanks very much, folks.